Hello and welcome back to the CUI podcast. This morning we're joined by Dr. Dan Strange in our lovely CUI offices. Dan, it's so great to have you here. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and yeah, why you're in Belfast? Yeah, great to be here. So I'm, I'm on a, a like a little mini uh, tour, um, doing some talks based on this book I've written called Making Faith Magnetic. Um, I am the director of Crosslands Forum, which is a new uh, centre for cultural engagement and mission, which is part of Crosslands Training. And formerly, I was the director of Oak Hill Theological College in North London. I was there for 16 years. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, a long time ago, I used to work for UCCF, the CU movement. So mm. I feel a great uh, uh, kinship um, with uh, IFES and U- UCCF. And uh, I suppose the, the other interesting thing is that my wife, um, Ellie, we've been married for a long time. Um, but we, um, she studied in the 90s in Queens. She did a uh, psychology degree. She's English. But she loved Belfast um, and uh, yeah, so that's the kind of Belfast connection uh, as well. Oh, great. And I'm a little bit biased towards Queen's myself, as I, I, as I am a Queen's graduate. It's a great university, <laughs> um, but it really is just so great to have you here, Dan, to, to chat a little bit about um, some of your, your new material in Magnetic Points. And this is a wonderful book. You can grab it on the Good Book Company um, if, you're, if you're intrigued after listening today. But Dan, um, we'd love to hear maybe a little bit about your heart in writing um, this book. What, what sort of yeah, why did you decide to, to write this? Yeah, so I, I wrote a previous book called Plugged In, um, and that was really giving a framework for uh, how cultural engagement as Christians is inevitable and how we might do that, what might be some of the theological framework, and then some examples of what good cultural engagement looks like. Mm-hmm. And this book is a kind of a sequel, really, um, but it gives more of a of an outline and a scaffold, I suppose, as to how we might uh, engage the culture around us. The big, um, I suppose, uh, uh, illustration at the beginning of the book, I don't know whether any of you have seen the film uh, Free Solo, uh, which is about Alex Honnold, the climber who climbs El Capitan. And um, it looks at times as if he's climbing kind of sheer, kind of like there's nothing to hold on to. But when you, the camera focuses in, you can see that he's, there's little kind of cracks and nubs that he's creatively climbing up. And I think the point I make in the book is I think often we're struggling with our friends and family who don't know Jesus to get traction. I mean, we love it when people actually are antagonistic. We'd rather have that than just indifference. But there's a lot of people who just aren't interested. They're just living, living their lives. And how do we get traction with them in a way that's not going to be a gear crunch to be able to talk about the gospel, but something that's natural. Um, and so the book is, a, what is the, the the framework, the theological framework? What are human beings like? And the idea here is that there are these um, touchstones, magnetic points or um, uh, itches that human beings have to scratch. And so the book is outlining those and giving contemporary examples and then suggesting what that might mean for our evangelism and our discipleship. No, that's great. And it's so helpful as well, because we can feel like that sometimes, can't we? We can feel like there's this disconnect between almost our our faith and then the other life we live at work or elsewhere. So I think it's such a helpful book in sort of helping us to see those connections and then being able to to, to share share Christ in that. Um, And I suppose we've we've got five wonderful points here, Dan, um, to to share about. Um, And I wonder if we we could maybe just dive a little bit into them and this morning and have a think about um, even where we can see these in our culture and yeah. our conversations and everything. Um, so would you even just run through Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the foundation, I think it's important to set the foundation. So we look at um, Romans 1 especially, mm. 
and what I call the cosmic game of hide and seek. So where the world thinks or we've been told that God is hiding and we, we've been looking for him. But actually Romans 1 says it's the other way around. God is not hiding. He's revealed himself in everything that's been made. We're the ones who are hiding. We've uh, suppressed the truth and exchanged that for um, idols, um, created things made to be God substitutes. Um, but we can never completely suppress our kind of image of Godness has to come out. So there's this weird dynamic that all human beings are both running to and running from God at the same time. They both know God and don't know him at the same time. And then Romans 1 also says that God has revealed his invisible um, qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. And really these magnetic points come out of that idea that we are dependent creatures and that we're accountable. And so uh, the book is based upon the work of a, of a, a missiologist, a, a missionary who lived in the um, 19, in the 20th century, a guy called J.H. Bavink. And he was a missionary in Java in Indonesia. And he was engaging with other religious traditions. And he said, look, the, 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 there's great um, kind of, uh, every religion is very different, but there seem to be certain similarities, certain um, common questions or issues that humans deal with. So I've kind of taken his idea and kind of put it into the 21st century with my own examples. So there's five magnetic points. Um, shall I just go through them? Yeah. yeah. So the first is um, uh, totality. Is there a way to connect? So it's this idea that we all have a sense that we want to belong or connect to something bigger than ourselves. Uh, often we feel insignificant as humans, but we gain significance when we connect with something bigger. Um, um, and then when we disconnect with that, we feel insignificant. So there's this constant battle between significance and insignificance, but we get significance through belonging. Um, and I give lots of uh, examples of what that looks like. It could be Comic-Con, it could be a football match, it could be a pride parade, it could be tracing your family tree, anywhere where we try and have a, this idea of connection. Um, and so I'm saying that all people kind of experience that or... They don't consciously think about it. They're living out their lives looking for that. Um, so that's the first one, totality. Is there a way to connect? The second one is norm. Is there a way to live? Um, there, we all have rules and standards um, um, uh, that we set for our culture um, and our subcultures. They, then that's not, I'm not necessarily talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about any kind of rules or norms that we have. Um, where we set the bar and where people have to meet a standard and then if they don't then what happens when they don't meet that standard so again in the book I talk about even subcultures have their own norms so a friend of mine was a, a goth and um, there's still rules even though goths are trying to react to, against culture they all have to react in a similar way so we all have these norms and the question is where do the norms come from where do the rules come from where does our sense of oughtness come from so that's norm, um, a way to live. The third one is um, deliverance. Is there a way out? All human beings uh, know that there's something wrong with the world. Uh, the issue is we all disagree on what the problem is, let alone whether there's a solution. Um, and that can be mini deliverances, as in how do I get through the day, to big questions like what happens when I die or issues to do with death. So this idea of deliverance, um, that there's a, um, a power or a paradise lost, that we need to be regained, but how do we get that? Um, the fourth one, my favorite one, is a destiny. Uh, is there a way we control? Bavink has this great line. He says, we both lead our lives and undergo our lives. So there's this sense, sometimes we feel as if I'm the master of my own destiny, I can do what I want to do, I can kind of pave a way. 
Um, other times we just feel I'm just like a pawn in someone else's chess game. I'm like a puppet and someone else is pulling the strings. I'm a victim. I've got no freedom. And Bavink says we kind of like, you know, just flip flop between those two. But we all have that idea of destiny. Um, is Are we in control or are we being controlled? And in the book, I talk about a lot of things to do with especially superstition. Um, but there's a great student example. Can I, sh can I share that with you? Sorry, I'm doing all the talking at the moment. Um, I did this at Newcastle and um, this is a, an, um, I said to the, 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 the Newcastle CU students, what are your friends dealing with the first year, the, the undergrads? Two things that I think wonderfully highlight this destiny point. The first is the phenomenon of manifesting. Mm. So the idea that, you know, it's a, a strange phenomena. It's like positive thinking stroke the prosperity gospel, really. <laughs> that if you think something, so a friend of mine, this lady in the CU, her her friend had thought she'd manifested her boyfriend. She wanted a boyfriend. She thought about it and the boyfriend appeared. So that's the idea that, you know, you can create reality yourself. The other thing that they were struggling with, though, or they were dealing with, was the issue of injection spiking in Newcastle Uni, where people were fearful to go out to clubs in case they were going to be spiked. And so there they felt they didn't have any control. So it's just two things on the one. Now, I didn't say to them, well, couldn't you manifest that you wouldn't get injection spike? But you see those two mm -hmm. things kind of like um, against each other. So that's the fourth point, destiny. Is there a way we control? And then finally, and then I'll shut up for a minute, the big, the magnetic point, the super magnetic point, I suppose, is um, a higher power. Is there a way beyond? I think as we think about these other questions, connection, norm, deliverance, destiny, we get to the point where we think, well, is there is there a reality beyond the reality that connects us, gives us the norm, delivers us, gives us a sense of control or not? Um, this isn't simply about a belief in God, because I think in our secular context, we need to do a lot of work to get there. It's more the issue of, is there a reality behind the reality? And in the book, I deal with what, what sociologists have called... Um, secular religious experiences so people who don't believe anything but it's almost a contrived religious experience because they want to feel something more um, and then we talk about that a little bit about what 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 that means so they're the magnetic points outlined for you oh that was just incredible <laughs> that was a great great run through uh, i think these are so helpful these points i suppose even in just for us beginning to see those connections when we're having those conversations and like you said in your book you really do begin to see them everywhere yeah, when you're yeah. having these conversations with people as well and I suppose we've seen that especially even with totality in the, the last year and lockdown and that yeah. longing for connection we've really had yeah. and that longing to be a part of something more yeah. coming out of lockdown experiencing zoom fatigue and people wanting to be part of, of yeah yeah things. and I mean the, I think the key thing about the points is that, I mean obviously when you're teaching them you have to do them in sequence, but really they don't compartmentalize them. They're all perspectives or way in. They all kind of connect with mm -hmm. each other and they lead back to this idea of what Bavink calls the religious consciousness, the idea that we've been made in God's image, but we're suppressing the truth. Mm -hmm. um, and that these, these points are kind of hardwired into us, really. So really the magnetic points are nothing other than an unpacking of mm -hmm. what it means for image bearers who suppress the truth. That's the kind of the... That way it lead, leads back to. Um, but yeah, it, it's very helpful. And just to stress that, um, again, people aren't consciously thinking about these things. You know, there's that great passage, uh, a bit in Isaiah, where Isaiah says about the idolater who makes their dinner out of the wood that they've used to cook their dinner. He says, you know, no one stops to think. But we know when we put biblical lenses on to see, 
where what comes out of Romans 1, dependence and accountability, that people are living out these points. So that's our point of contact um, to bring the gospel in. And so like you said, like it, it's subconscious for, for all of our friends thinking these things. So how does that help us in kind of like conversations with them so that we don't seem like we're totally psychoanalyzing them or, <laughs> yeah. you know, totally seem unnatural. Oh, I can see the way you're thinking. Like, how can we use it in conversations or in relationships? Yeah, I, so I think there's a, I think it gives us a, a kind of, um, a fr- uh, it gives us a framework that when people are talking just about their lives, rather than us thinking, well, we're the weird ones that we're now going to have to, how am I going to bring religion into this conversation? <laughs> We know, now this is not what we say, but we know that their lives are responses to revelation. They, and they have hopes and dreams and desires. I, th- I suppose the way I'm thinking about it more and more is they, they, everyone is, everyone is doing, living their theology all the time. This is just a very kind of, they have a relationship with God. They know him and they don't know him. And so what we're trying to do is just to bring that out more, that if we have commitments to things and we, we, und- we have... Um, we're going to be able to answer the magnetic points. I suppose that's the second half of the book. What does the, how does the Christian answer those? But that, but they have ways of answering these as well. And I think all the points, the, the issue is, is that they cannot be completely resolved without the gospel. There's always going to be, am I insignificant or significant? Is there a norm or is there not? Can I be delivered or not? Am I in control? So I think these are very perennial human questions. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's all of this stuff has to be done within like, relationships of trust and getting to know people but it is then trying to ask that question that might then get them to start thinking about to bring more consciously I suppose to the surface oh yeah you know I do I do think that I'm just a victim but I still think I have some responsibility as well so it's getting it's that classic kind of putting the stone in the shoe um, to get them to start thinking well you know maybe I do have these commitments i am answering certain questions in my life but often they can be quite they can be quite deep i mean the um the thing i've noticed is i think with bad when bavik's in indonesia everyone believes in a god or gods and the question is which is the god or gods that give us connection norm deliverance destiny here so the kind of the higher power comes first and then all the other points are underneath in our context the other points come first and we have to dig quite we have to do a lot of excavation to get to that final point is there a reality but i think we can get there and it gives us confidence that no matter how much we think we're kind of all our conversations people are just there's no people just pinging off the surface there will always be a way in because um, people cannot completely suppress the truth it has to come out somewhere i think we just need to be much more creative maybe than we have been about where those where we find those points of connection yeah and i think it's even like you said there dan helping people see that actually they they are being shaped by what's around them that we don't live in a secular vacuum that is just completely independent from all other thoughts and yeah and and i think you know that that's where post-modernity i think has been quite helpful it says that you know we, we are all coming from somewhere we have been shaped um and showing people that is really is is i think important just like you know we like we we like observational comedy when people show us what we're really doing. I think there's a certain amount of that's what evangelism and apologetics is is about. It's what Schaefer talked about when he talked about you know taking the lid off or taking the roof off mm-hmm. someone's worldview. Um, you know, I always say 
in all my the training I do with Christians on, on this material, your non-Christian friends and family, the students you're ministering to, they are not in a parallel room learning how not to be a Christian. They're just living. But what we have to do again is that Isaiah thing. No one stops to think. How do we get them stop to think? Uh, get them get them stop and think. And in, in the second half of your book, Dan, you chat about the magnetic person and sort of drawing people to Christ. Do you want to share a little bit? About yeah. That? So the, um, so this really follows on from the plugged in book. So the big the big um, idea here is this idea of subversive fulfilment. So very quickly, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ Himself always confronts and connects the idolatrous ways that we are trying to answer the magnetic points so the gospel always confronts it always subverts it's always the opposite of the way the world does things but it also connects and in plugged in especially looking at 1 corinthians 1 you know we preach christ crucified foolishness the opposite of what the world thinks about things um but Paul still highlights two ethnic groups, Jews and Greeks. Jews, their social imaginary, their worldview, their hopes, dreams and aspirations. They're focusing on power. Greeks look for wisdom. Jews are not Greeks. Greeks are not Jews. They're both looking for different things. And so my passion has been sometimes I think you can read that passage in 1 Corinthians and you say, well, we preach Christ crucified. <laughs> Who cares what Greeks or Jews think? We just preach Christ crucified. But Paul contextualizes because at the end of that passage, he says, for those who have been saved, Christ, both the power of God and the wisdom of God, in precisely the opposite way that those groups thought it would be brought about. A crucified Messiah is not powerful. A crucified Messiah is not wise. But Paul makes the connection. Um, and I think Acts 17, again, is a great example of, of, of how Paul does that. So with the magnetic points, in some ways I'm putting together subversive fulfillment and the magnetic points to say in the gospel, in the person and work of Christ... Jesus is the one where we truly understand connection. Jesus is the norm. Jesus gives us deliverance. Jesus is the way we understand about our place or our control, I suppose, our destiny. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the light of the world. He is the higher power. So what we're trying to do then is to show how the gospel, both in the, the, the Christian worldview and Jesus in particular, um, both subverts and fulfills those mag magnetic points so the second half of the book is then going through each of the points to say what might be some of the theological themes or the um, the way in which Jesus uh, is able to subversively fulfill the magnetic points in a way then that gives traction um, that which is what the book's about and I think when you kind of talk about idolatrous ways of pursuing the magnetic points and maybe a little bit in, in kind of your first book plugged in as well like how are there some forms of kind of idolatrous ways of, of looking at the magnetic points or forms of culture that are kind of like we can't actually look at and say and redeem and look at and, and subvert or or is there in everything something that we can that we can great question well i think at the end of the day i mean idolatry is always taking a created thing and making it inflating it to the place of god and the created thing is a good thing so idolatry is parasitic. So I, yes, obviously there are degrees of uh, ways in which things have been distorted horribly without recognition. But I think all false ways of viewing the world, are it's always an example of suppressed truth. And sometimes that truth can be horrendously suppressed. But all of those, I would say all of those things, I think I would say, yes, theoretically, it, it, there's no worldview 
that does not have any of God's common grace or this idea of the image of God. I mean, that's that's the other thing I'm saying. We can never we we need to treat everyone with dignity and respect, even though we can you know disagree with them profoundly because they are made in God's image. And that can never be totally erased. Man, we try and do it. I mean, and there's a, so many examples of where you think this is inhumane. But I think human beings always um, uh, are offered dignity and respect, even though we we can strongly disagree. And the Bible is so strong on the nature of sin. So in some ways, it's it's it, an odd paradox because I want to I want to big up the image of God and I want to big up the the incredibly pervasiveness and evilness of sin, um, both at the same time. They're kind of super amp amplified. Um, but if we didn't think that, I think we'd be in a situation where we think there is no point of contact and there's always a point of contact. But when God lets, when God hardens a heart, lets someone go, I mean, it can be, it can take a long time to dig around. Um, so I, I, I don't think it's uniform. I think there are varying levels of suppression. And I guess that mindset does then totally change the way we approach things, because I think, myself sometimes i'm inclined to think this way you know in politics or in just kind of big worldview stuff people who find their identity in things that i totally disagree with i'm inclined to just sort of condemn that or or, or be angry about that or, or frustrated about that whereas actually i think that longing for identity that they're pursuing is something that we can engage with oh exactly um, and i think and again acts you know act 17 not maybe the beginning of act 17 or the middle bit is is really interesting on that because Paul, he gets to Athens, he's waiting for his friends, and it says he was he was distressed. I mean it's an English way of putting it. He was like he has a paroxysm, he's nearly like violently ill by the idolatry that he sees in Athens. Literally, it's the only city that's described in Acts as submerged in idolatry. And because he has such a passion for God's glory, not because he thinks he's better, but because he he he, he has God's heart. I mean, Deuteronomy 32, God is provoked by the idolatry that he sees in his people. Um, but what does Paul do? He doesn't say, right, stuff it. I'm going to wait for my friends and just won't do anything. He does what he always does. He goes to the synagogues. He goes to the marketplaces. He talks about Jesus. They say, we don't know what you're talking about. You're babbling. And that's when he has his opportunity to wander around the objects of worship. So he kind of, um, hey, he's kind of don't get bitter, get better. It's kind of don't, don't just, uh, um, yes, there's a righteous anger that I think we have. And, we, and again, you know, increasingly magnetic, it's also about um, I see that sin in my own life mm -hmm. as well. And that's why I, I can talk to other people because there's a common struggle that we have. But I am one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Um, so that zeal, but channeling that zeal into loving, like, like confrontational apologetics. I mean, it is about confrontation and connection. And in my experience, there's some Christians who are great at the confrontation but aren't great at the connection and some who are great at the connection and aren't great at the confrontation and Paul does both and I think that that is our model and where I think we have to help each other if we're tending on one side or the other to try and do both at the same time because it is about unmasking sin it is about showing idols um, about expo exposing idolatry and then showing the fountain of living water um, so I think that has to be our attitude it has to be one of love but sometimes you know it is tough love to expose people's i always go back to the black jeremiah 2 passage you know my they're talking about the covenant people but how much are those outside you know my people have committed two sins they've turned from the fountain of living water and they've turned to cracked cisterns that cannot hold water and we need to imagine 
all of our non-Christian friends and family are drinking stagnant water from a cracked cistern when we have a fountain of living water to show them now. They have to repent. That's how Paul finishes that sermon in Acts. There has to be a repentance and coming to Christ. But there's still a connection between the cracked cistern where people are looking for water and the fountain of living water. And I think that's all that we're trying to do. Um, I think this your book is just so helpful in doing that. I know I find it so helpful, Dan, in, in helping me draw people to that living water and that great hope that we have in Christ. And I suppose as we, we think about finishing and, yep. and sort of how, how can we best sort of even using those connections and those magnetic points that we've been ch- chatting about, how do we then draw those conversations yeah. to Christ? Well, it's interesting. There's a, there's a, um, I'm thinking more and more about this. So the, this material was in um, lessons that I taught on evangelism and apologetics at seminary. And one, um, one student put their hand up a few years ago and said, Dan, why is this in evangelism and apologetics? Surely this is primarily about discipleship. That is to say, and this is the last chapter of the book, which really increasingly I think should be the first chapter. These magnetic points are not first about engaging other people. It's how am I pulled away by other things? How do I make sure that I'm sticking to Jesus? And as I do that, I'll draw people in rather than thinking, I need to do evangelism with the magnetic points. I think it's about, you know, Jesus says that we're to make disciples and the commonness of my struggles and my own heart wants to be transformed by the gospel. And then naturally, then I think we will be more evangelistic. And I use the example of, you know, don't think of our lives as a, don't think of your life as a pie chart, even like those of you who are in ministry, where you have, you know, you know, work, leisure, evangelism as being its own segment. Life's a flow diagram and everything impacts it, everything else. So I would rather, increasingly I'm saying, the best way to use this material is to go to the last chapter almost and apply it to ourselves first. Where are we drawn away by other connections? Where do we think there's a norm outside of Christ? Where do we find other deliverances? Where do we um, think that God's got it in for me? Because uh, then as we are transformed and as we stay close to Christ and we realise he's the answer to all of these points, then I think naturally when we're talking to other people with similar struggles who don't know Christ, we then are able to s- talk about it more. So not um, compom- compartmentalising what we call evangelism, I think is the main way. Now, of course, I still want people to come together, read the book and apply it to their own context. And that's this is the final thing I'd say, then I will shut up, is that there's no point the book... I can the books are giving a framework, but I don't know all the context that all of you are in. I mean, I've been in Belfast for a few days now, and Belfast has its own distinctive like context. So you have to work really hard to say what does this mean, not at ten thousand feet generically, but what does it mean for where I am, where God has placed me now in the church community I'm in, and then hopefully that will give us traction because the magnetic points are a framework, and like any kind of scaffold. You do the work and then you can take the scaffold away, but then you're left with something that says, um, you know, the objects of worship in Belfast are at a very specific level that I think then does get traction with people rather than just a generic, you know, you've been made in God's image, you've fallen, Jesus died for you, come to him. What does that mean for people's like everyday lives? And that's that's the hard work and that's what I'm encouraging churches to do.
Dan, that's that's so so helpful. Thank you for that, and thank you for so much for taking time to, to chat a little bit a about your you. your book. And this has just been so helpful, I suppose, in even just helping us think about what that looks like for our own context, but also our own lives. And as we look to Jesus, and from that overflow, share Him. Yeah, thanks, thank guys. You thank so you. Much. Thanks, guys. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of your day wherever you're listening to. Goodbye.